Well, I'd like you this evening, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 3, to the chapter that we were uh, in this morning. And I want to just read of you those opening three verses again of 2 Kings and chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3 and those opening verses. It says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. My title this evening is The Biography of a Good Sinner. I'm not entirely happy with the title, but I couldn't think of a better one. And I trust as we go through this passage this evening, you'll understand what I mean as I say the biography of a good sinner. I don't know if you enjoy reading people's biographies. Personally, I think that they can be fascinating, can't they? Uh, To read of the events and the circumstances that shaped a a famous person, you know, to hear of their upbringing, their experiences and challenges. Uh, I think they can be very interesting things to read. And you can get good biographies, And, of course, you can get bad biographies. It can all depend, really, on the writer. What elements do they want to highlight? What angle are they taking? What's the writer's agenda as they write about this particularly famous person? And, of course, today we are increasingly seeing more and more biographies of famous people where they're trying to rubbish the person and bring them down and uh, discredit them for their various achievements. But here in 2 Kings chapter 3, we just read a very brief uh, biography of this man called King Jehoram. Now, I'm sure you know that as you read the books of 1 and 2 Kings and Chronicles 2, they record for us the lives of uh, different people who ruled over Israel and over Judah. And often, uh, before we're given specific details and, uh, you know, some of the events and circumstances of their life, the things that were significant in their life, Before all of that, we are often presented with a sort of a summary of what their life was like. A thumbnail sketch, you might say. It's as if the the person's life has been boiled right down to the very essentials. And just the key things are are mentioned. And these uh, these thumbnail sketches are, are fascinating because as you go through, you'll see there is often little differences between them. But the main reason why they are fascinating is because the author of them is not some biased human writer who has an agenda behind what they are writing, someone who adds their own sort of colour as they paint the events. No, rather here, the author is God himself. God who is the one who searches people's hearts. God who cannot lie. And so this sketch that we just read here is penned by this God's. And this got me thinking, if God were to write a brief biography of my life or a brief biography of your life, I wonder what God would say. If God were to look at everything that you've done to mark every key moment in your life, every circumstance, and then boil it right down just to what he considers to be essential, what would he write concerning you? 
Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, does it, what a historian may think of us. It doesn't matter what our peers or our colleagues or our friends or our family consider about us. What is really essential is what the Lord thinks of us. That's what really counts, what God thinks of you. God's verdict is the only one that really matters in this world. And this biography of Jehoram here is helpful and it's insightful because it shows to us what God is like and it reveals aspects of what God sees. And so this evening I want to just uh, look at this uh, for a few moments, look at this brief biography with you. And as I said, like most biographies in the book of 1 and 2 Kings, it's, uh, it's very brief, but it's, they're usually split into two parts. Usually you have the first part where they stand historically, where they fit in historically. And the second part of it is usually where they stand spiritually. And it's that second part particularly that I want to focus on with you this evening, verses 2 and 3 of this chapter. In the first part there, we, we read about where Jehoram stood in relation to time and history, when he began to reign over Israel and so on. But it's really verses 2 and 3 that I want us to focus in on tonight, where uh, Jehoram stood spiritually. And the first thing that I want to draw to your attention in this brief biography is that we see that sin is seen. Sin is seen. You know, when you read uh, the biographies of famous people, very often uh, the person who writes the biography is, you know, they sort to collect various information, haven't they, about the person, whether that's eyewitness accounts or historical documents, and, and then maybe they interview friends and family look at those who've worked with the person and so on, and they collect all this information and they try and present an idea of what this person was like. And often one feature of biographies is they like to magnify their virtues and their gifts, don't they? They minimise their flaws, they play down the things that perhaps were negative in their life and they like to lift up the, the, the things that uh, are praiseworthy. And so we can often get a distorted view of this person, but, but God is not like that. And right at the very start of this biography, the Lord tells us that Jehoram wrought evil in the sight of the Lord. His actions were sinful. The general uh, direction and bent of this man's life was one that was away from God and towards sin and towards wickedness. But there's more to that uh, little description there in verse 2 than perhaps first meets the eye. Because he says that he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord. If we were to make a, perhaps a more literal translation of that, you could say that he performed or he did evil before the eye of the Lord. Now the eye in, in scripture speaks of so much more than simply seeing. It also conveys the idea of understanding and, and knowledge. What, what enters in through the eye is seen, yes, but it's also perceived. It's also understood. That's why we're told in the book of Psalms particularly that, this, that the gods, the idols of this world, they have eyes, but they see not. That is, they have no perception. They have no understanding. That's, that's why men love them in one sense. They love to worship a god that they, they can't see them. A God who can't spot their sin. Idolatrous man, he doesn't really want an omniscient being watching and, and knowing and seeing. And perhaps that describes you tonight. You'd rather worship a God who doesn't see what you do secretly, who doesn't know your sin. But Jehovah, the only true and living God, he sees all. 
Remember Hagar in the Old Testament came to realise this, Genesis 16. She said, thou God seest me. David likewise, Psalm 139, he had to confess, didn't he, that wherever he went, the Lord was there, whether it was heaven, whether it was hell, whether it was to the uttermost parts of the sea, the Lord could see him. He could see him if he, even if he went to the outer reaches of the universe. Wherever that, wherever that may be, the Lord would still be able to see him even there. His eye would be upon him. I don't know if you saw this, but just at the end of last year, they put a brand new telescope into space. I think it was launched on Christmas Day, I think it was. And they've sent this telescope into space to replace the Hubble, the old Hubble telescope. And they want to discover more of what lies out there. Now, I was reading that last year alone, astronomers discovered 242 new exoplanets. I don't know what an exoplanet is, what the definition is, but they've discovered 242 new planets out there. And the scientists rejoice at these new discoveries. But the thing is, God knew all about them long before they did. Because he sees all things. And Jonah discovered this, didn't he? Even when he was in the belly of that great fish and darkness covered him and the whale's flesh covered him and the sea was covering him, he could be seen by gods. He thought he'd gone out of the sight of gods. But he came to realize that the Lord could see him even there. And friends, here's a, a truth that should make each one of us pause for a moment. We should stop and contemplate it. his force tonight. Our entire lives are spent beneath the eye of gods. His eyes never close because he never slumbers nor sleeps. He has a perfect knowledge and an understanding of every aspect of our lives. This is the very God who's numbered every hair upon your head and he sees your sin. You know, friends, tonight you cannot hide a, a single transgression from the gaze of God. He sees it all. And Jehoram's sin was naked and open before God. It was in the sight of God's. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Solomon says in Proverbs 15 and verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the goods. In that same chapter, verse 11, he says, hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men. Jehoram's heart was, was open before God, his sin was seen. You know, no bio biographical writer knows the heart of a person, but the Lord does. You know, friends, he knows you. Every sin that you've ever committed has been seen by the eye of God. So we see here in this verse, we see that sin was seen. But notice, secondly, with, with me tonight, that iniquity was marked. Iniquity was marked we said we just noted that God sees sin. Everything Jehoram did was before the eyes of the Lord. But it's important to stress tonight that God is not merely a spectator. Some people have this, this foolish view that God is sat, as it were, in the stands, watching on as the world plays out in front of him. Just like somebody at a football match may sit and watch the action, but they're not actually in any way involved within it. But that's not what we see here in this passage because rather God not only sees sin, but he also marks it and he records it. Just look again at what it says in these verses in, in verse 2. In verse 2 we have this reference to the evil of Jehoram's father and mother. 
Now Jehoram's father and mother were King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And then you go into verse 3 there, and he also mentions Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he brings his sins into the picture. Now, let me just remind you of the character of these people. King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were, up to this point anyway, some of the most wicked king and queen to rule over Israel. Jeroboam was a different sort of king, but he's credited as the the first to introduce idolatry on a national scale. You recall how he put the two golden calves, one at Dan and one at Bethel, and God says here, look, I've seen their sins just as much as I've seen your sins, Jehoram. Now, you have to remember that at this point in time, Jeroboam had been dead for approximately 70 years. Ahab had also left the scene of time, but despite being dead, every sin had been recorded by God. He had, as it were, catalogued it all. Every one of Ahab's sins, every one of Jezebel's sins, every one of Jeroboam's sins, and every one of Jehoram's sins were all written down by God. And friends, the Lord has not changed. He marks our iniquities. He's not like a lenient parent who just sort of passes over the errors of their children. He doesn't shrug his shoulders and laugh at our sin. Far from it, he tracks every trespass. He notes every infraction of his holy law, whether it's in thought, whether it's in word, whether it's in deed. Every time we've come short of the glory of God, it goes into his book. Remember when Daniel had that vision that's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 7, He sees the Ancient of Days, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees him. And in verse 10 he says, The judgment was set and the books were opened. The books were opened. These are the books that are the the written record of our lives. And we can tie this all in, can't we, with Revelation chapter 20 and that passage there. And we have the same concept and idea there in in this wonderful pictorial book. In Revelation 20, in verse 11, he says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to to their works. Friends, tonight if we grasp the, the, in a sense, the solemnity of this, every sin we've committed is recorded by God. It goes down in his book. He doesn't forget a single sin or miss any of our sins. Let me ask you tonight, what, you know, what kind of things are written about you in that book? If you're not a Christian here tonight, this should alarm you. Every sin, every sin, Not just seen, but recorded, marked by God. But you remember what we read earlier in Psalm 130? In that passage, you remember what the psalmist writes there? Again, solemn words, he says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? See, God's law is so, so rigid and inflexible and his, his regulations condemn us. We, we stand before God hopeless. I know one writer put it, perhaps it sounds a bit flippant, but he says we haven't got a leg to stand on. 
And that's that's true when we come before God. He marks our iniquities. We cannot stand before him. When he calls us on that great day of judgment, we'll have no answer. We'll have no defense. It's all there written down. But the psalmist goes on here, doesn't he, in verse 4. He says, but there is forgiveness with thee. And friends, tonight, here's the most wonderful of all truths. Yes, God sees our sin. Yes, God records our every iniquity. But there is forgiveness with God's. It's a forgiveness that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ died on the cross, he took our sins. Every, all that record, as it were, was taken with him. Remember how Paul puts it in that very graphic way in Colossians chapter 2. Those wonderful words and how he describes what Christ has done at Calvary. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, he says here, he's blotting, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Paul's saying, in a sense, that Christ at Calvary took that book of your sins. He took the record of all that you've done. And as it were, it was nailed to his cross. He took it out of the way. All the offences were were blotted out. The, The great book of our debt, every penny that we owe to God, it's as if he's put a great cross through it all, and it says at the bottom, paid in full. That's why the hymn writer put it, didn't they? Didn't she? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part by the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. So we see here in this brief biography, Jehoram's sins were all marked. And Ahab's sins were all marked. And Jezebel's sins were all marked. And Jeroboam's sins were all marked. And friends, tonight all your sins are marked too. But there is forgiveness with Christ. Do you know that forgiveness? I remember once hearing a children's talk. It was a wonderful children's talk. I won't, do, I won't go through the whole thing. Because it's quite lengthy, but this, this man, he came with an, ex, an exercise book, a children's exercise book, and he said, I'm, imagine I'm going to write down all your sins in this book. And on the front of this book, in big letters, it says your name, and it says your sin account. But then he went through all the things that happen to this book when you come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he went through all the ways that God has dealt with our sin, and he talked about how the scapegoat takes, as it were, that book and takes it off into an uninhabited land, and how all the words are blotted out, and how that book is cast into the depths of the sea where nobody can go. And he said, but you know, imagine but God can still see it at the bottom of the sea. And he talks about how God takes our sins and he puts them behind his back where he can't see them. And then last of all, he said, not only can God not see them, but you see, God can still remember them, can't he? But what does God promise? I will remember them no more. You know, when you come to Christ, that book of your sin, it's destroyed, it's gone, it's blotted out. Because Christ has paid it all. So we see here in this this brief biography that sin is seen, yes, and iniquity is marked. But notice, lastly, we see a reformation that was insufficient. A reformation that was insufficient. Jehoram here uh, is described as being not as bad, not like his father, not like his mother, in verse 2 there. Now, for this, we need to really put ourselves into, into Jehoram's shoes for a moment. I mean, here was, a, here was a king, remember, that had grown up in the palace under the guidance and the care of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. 
He'd spent his childhood in Samaria being trained by these two sinful parents. And remember, we we said a moment ago that these were two of the most wicked people in all of Israel's history. Ahab, we read, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than any other king up to this point. Jezebel, his mother, had brought in the worship of Baal. And she controlled her weak husband and Ahab's reign of idolatry and bloodshed. It it lasted for 22 years. And when he died, Jehoram's brother Ahaziah became king. And he copied his father and he copied his mother and he served Baal too. Now his reign was cut short after only two years when he fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber and eventually died. But when you put that all together, you see that for 24 years, this land had been steeped in Baal worship. Ahab's image of Baal had loomed large over over the palace all this time. But in verse 2, it tells us that he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Now, this would have been a radical thing to do. You know, imagine for a moment, and I know this is a very poor example, a poor parallel, but you imagine Prince Charles, he becomes king, and uh, the next day after he's been crowned as king, you see workmen at the Angel of the North, and they're beginning to dismantle and take down the Angel of the North. Can you imagine the uproar and and, and how people would react to seeing this this thing that's been there for years, taken down? What's going on? What's what's he doing? It would have been the same in, in Jehoram's day. He took this image away. What what was he doing? It appears, doesn't it, that Jehoram didn't want to be a chip off the old block. He He didn't want to indulge in these gross sins that his parents had committed that were so public. And there may have been a number of reasons for this. Perhaps he was, uh, as he was growing up, he saw firsthand something of the evil of Baal worship. Or perhaps he saw something of the, the emptiness of it all. Perhaps he simply wanted to be rebellious and do things differently from his dad's. You know, perhaps he was determined, as people used to say when, when I was a teenager, I'm not going to be like my old man, I'm not going to do what he did, I'm going to do my own thing. Perhaps he wanted to be like that, be a bit rebellious. Or perhaps he brought about this, this mini-reformation because of the godly influence of Jehoshaphat. As we were thinking this morning, he entered this, he entered this political alliance with him and maybe he thought it would be to his political advantage to get rid of this, this image so that he could be friends with the king of Judah. Maybe many reasons why he, he began this reformation in the land of Israel. But the problem was that this reformation was incomplete. It was only partial. And because it was incomplete, sadly, it was also insufficient. And a partial reformation is not the same as complete regeneration. While he may have got rid of one idol, the narrative in verse 3 continues and says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam. What he did was he replaced one form of idolatry with another. He abandoned one sin but cleaved to another. He stopped one form of wickedness but he departed not from another. Yes, maybe what he turned his back upon was very evil and very wicked, and what he turned to was less wicked and less evil, but nonetheless he cleaved to sin. Notice what verse 2 says. It's very particular, the wording. It says, he put away the image. But the law commanded people to destroy images, not to put them away. 
Let me read to you what it says in Exodus 23 and verse 24. The Lord says, Thou shalt not bow down to the gods of this of the other nations, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. This image of Baal, it should have been ground to powder like Moses did with the golden calf. Remember how the believers in Ephesus did something very similar, how they brought all their their books of curious arts and they publicly burned them to say, like I'm turning my back upon these idols. The old life was gone. You recall the testimony of the Thessalonians, how Paul says that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true gods. That's what true regeneration does. But Jehoram had not done this. He had simply put aside the image of Baal. And instead of turning to the living God, he he simply filled the void with a different wickedness. That's what we were reading there in Luke chapter 11 about the man who's, who's likened to a house. Remember the house that's swept and garnished and it's all clean inside. One evil spirit has gone. One form of wickedness, as it were, is swept away. But what replaces it is seven other spirits. And what do we read? The state of that man was worse. And friends, tonight you may conquer certain undesirable things in your life. You may make a turnaround in your life. Maybe you've conquered alcoholism. Maybe you've conquered all sorts of sins in your life. And you've brought about certain reforms. In a sense, you've, you've swept your house clean. You no longer indulge in these particular forms of wickedness and sin. But friends, unless you turn to Christ, your position will be worse than it was before. Just as one whole will sink a ship, so one sin will drag a sinner to hell. Friends, tonight we see here, partial reformation still leaves you a condemned sinner. Outward action's not enough, you need inward change. That's why Christ said you must be born again. It's got to be something new, a new nature, you've got to have a new heart. You can't simply just put off old sins because new ones will come. Let me ask you tonight, are you a bit like Jehoram? You've made certain changes to your life. You can read about people like this on the internet, how I battled depression, how I overcome this particular sin, how I dealt with this. And look at me now. Look at my reformed life. But there's no inward change. See, what you need to do is you need to come to Christ. It's only he that can blot out your transgressions. It's only in Christ that there is forgiveness as we were reading in Psalm 130. It's only he that can keep the house clean and swept. It's only he that can give you a new heart. So friends tonight let me say to you why go on sweeping? Why go on reforming? Why go on changing and seeking to be better when you can have Christ now? You see, partial reformation is not sufficient. It was not sufficient for Jehoram. The Lord saw his sin. He saw how he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam. And sinner tonight, it's not good enough for you. No, you need to trust in the Savior. You need to serve him and love him. And turn from your sin. Turn from your idols. And seek the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust that all of us here this evening would do that. If you've never done it before, you can do it even now in the quietness of your heart. Turn to him and love him and serve him.